I said, well, she lives with you, like you said, our generations of the people that we carry, like you said, speaking about Day of the Dead, everything ends with us. When we go, then everyone goes. Her memory is with you. As you destroy yourself, you're destroying her. And then we cried. <laughs> we just cried. <laughs> I mean, he might have used PCP again the next weekend. Who knows? I don't know what happened to him. Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Jonas Attilus, based in Boston, um, internal medicine um, intern, a resident at Boston Medical Center. Um, today we have a wonderful guest, someone that I met two years ago, actually. <laughs> someone who's changing the life of so many people um, here in the U.S. and abroad. Um, she's doing a lot of things um, as a nurse, as an anthropolo- uh, medical anthropologist, and as a human being. Um, that is someone that I can't define, and I will give her the opportunity to talk more about herself, but I'm so proud of her, and she's 10V. Um, good morning, Terry. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm excited to be here. What about you, Agaf? What's going on? What's going on, man? Good to, good to be here with you guys and enjoying the, the privilege to get to connect with you, Tanvi, about your story and all the, all the different hats that you wear and yeah, to just hang out here with both of you guys. I'm grateful for it. Yeah, yeah so, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, you can you can go ahead, Sylvie. Oh, do you want me to introduce myself? Yeah, yeah, that sure. would be awesome for our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, sure. So um, I have a master's in medical anthropology. I have a master's in nursing, and I currently work part-time as an emergency nurse. I have worked as a community health nurse in substance use recovery, um, public health nurse, clinical instructor, um, I'm also in school again um, to be a midwife and a women's health nurse practitioner. Um, I've also been on the crunchier side of healthcare as a doula yoga instructor. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, a midwifery is already pretty crunchy. So just <laughs> rounding out the whole picture. <laughs> the crunchiness, I love it. Yeah. And um, I worked on the campaign against racism with a whole bunch of folks from the Social Medicine Consortium. And I'm excited to talk about narrative therapy today and narrative medicine. Um, It is uh, partially from medicine. It's also partially from medical anthropology. So putting that all together toward community organizing is, yeah, excited to talk about it all. Yeah, maybe as like sort of like an opening uh, question, could you just like, what, what is exciting to you right now? Like, what are you waking up and thinking about? What are you like, motivated about, passionate about, what's sort of like lighting your fire right now? That is a tough question for 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This has been quite a year. Um, Even before the pandemic started, I um, lost my job. I lost a relationship. I lost my laptop in the same week. Um, So I wasn't off to a good start. before March either. Um, I am a perpetual student. I'm very excited about being a student always. I guess I'm really excited, and I've said this a lot to a lot of different people in different ways, that 
um, now that everyone has the same language for anti-racism and it's just present in people's psyche, like there's no going back. So if, if someone starts, you know, doing something, you can be like, I remember when you tweeted after Memorial Day, after George Floyd was murdered, your diversity statement. <laughs> I have receipts. So I, that excites me that, um, that the narrative is being pushed forward toward liberation. And there's this like accountability you're sort of pointing at. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so do, do you think, like, um, I know, like, today we want to talk a little bit about narrative therapy. Um, that new language or that sense of accountability um, or that sense of liberation, do you think it has a part? Yeah, so narrative therapy itself actually emerges from, uh, it's like a discipline that's specific to refugee health and refugee mental health. Um, and so it is very trauma-informed just in and of itself, that's it, how it how it works. Um, so I don't know if it's new. It's actually what my therapist uses with me, which is why I feel very familiar with it. Um, and I've been diving more into it, thinking about um, public narrative for community organizing and um, just, ref just being reflexive as an anthropologist. Reflexivity is kind of like the bedrock of good ethnography. So I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, can you can you sort of build a little bit like how how would you define narrative therapy? What does that mean to you? Sure. And why it's important too. Yeah, yeah. And why is it important? Yeah. Oh, I think it's so important. I think it is like the best way to be trauma informed in my opinion. I think um just classically a narrative has a protagonist and often I think our patients don't see themselves as protagonists in their own mm. health narrative, right? Mm. They see maybe the physician as the protagonist, like, Doc, mm. tell me what to do. You're in charge. Um when I was working in substance use, I made a lot of effort to ask um, my clients, like, what do you want? And they, they would never know. There was no answer. They had never been in control in their lives. Either um, like a male figure was in control or abusive partner or the substance was in control or the systems that they were trapped in were in control. So I always asked them, what do you want? Like just so that they could emerge their own narrative, start to say I statements, make themselves the subject of a conversation rather than the object. So I think it's so important because it takes the pathology out of the structures that oppress us. So you're not like almost my, my clients were black. Um, like there's nothing inherently wrong with being black. There's nothing genetically wrong with being black. Um, but it's so internalized because the narrative of blackness, especially in the United States, is of being ill, um, is not living as long as other people. So I, I think placing our patients as a protagonist of their own stories is really powerful. Well, that, that's, uh, that's deep. Um, that's deep and that speaks to me because when I was a medical student, uh, when I moved to Mexico, you know, I would start medicine in Mexico. Um, at that time I was a refugee and at some point I was having some issue doing my psychiatry rotation. And my professor, who is a psychiatrist, I, I don't know, he could sense something. He could sense it. And then he said, do you mind if I refer you to a psychiatrist? Because I'm going to be your professor. I cannot see you. But do you mind if I send you to a psychiatrist? And then he sent me. And I, and, and I, 
and I remember I was in that office of that guy and and uh, you know as soon as I arrived and I was trying to tell my story like the first thing he said he said hmm, you may have some kind of PTSD and then uh, and then after that uh, I think so many questions he was asking me I didn't want to give an answer I didn't want to lie but I didn't want him to know either you sort of mean and then at some point I said you know I'm not going to see him anymore because I don't feel comfortable uh, but but now what you're trying to say it's like in spite of um, in spite of having that paternalistic approach, in spite of, of having um, some set of rules set for everybody, by having the person the opportunity to narrate his uh, history and understand it from, from his own perspective, maybe that would have been better or that would have worked in my case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of times, and especially if you don't mind me um, reflecting, uh, men and sometimes even black men in the U.S. at least uh, don't want to be like, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I mean, just like I, I can't have PTSD. Like, why would I, you know, someone who is strong and um, in charge, why would I be susceptible to trauma? Right. So I, I think what narrative therapy does, it's non-pathologizing, like our problems become the object rather than ourselves. So um, it, it just allows you to feel less resistant and having that defensiveness that you're experiencing. And, you know, like, it, it wasn't that this happened to me and I had to become a refugee. It's that I chose to take the most compassionate narrative. There, any, Every narrative is possible, right? I chose to take the most compassionate narrative and leave the space of comfort and familiarity for safety, right? And I mean, it, I mean, it, it's complex too because, and I, I saw also I love that you're always reflective on these podcasts, Jonas, because I think that's such a deep part of medicine that's missing, that we need to intertwine the narratives of our our patients with ours, right? Like you will be such a powerful physician. You are a powerful physician now. Um, because you, you've experienced things and you know how to weave your narrative of your many axes of oppression with your patients. That's deep. That's deep because <laughs> um, for some reason, I was speaking with someone last night and I was telling that person before I become a refugee in Mexico, I, my, yeah, I sleep on the street in Haiti after the earthquake, so I know what I have a sense what homelessness means and now being at the, at the hospital where there's a lot of homeless people, I don't feel them foreign to me. And also um, there's a lot of migrant undocumented people at my place too. So like so many things come up and don't make me so foreign to the patient that I'm trying to take care of. And and I think, um, I think that's make you powerful or that's make you... Um, have the opportunity to link and build a strong therapeutic alliance just to help the patient. Yeah, I like how you said alliance. Like, the you're not fighting the person. I feel like a lot of times in medicine, especially in the emergency department, we're so guilty of this. Like, the patient, it's like you roll your eyes when you see an overdose, right? I mean, I don't, but <laughs> I mean, you, you see someone who's being combative. Like, just on Friday night, um, we had a patient who was... She was really sweet to me, and then she's, I don't know what happened, I don't know what changed, but she started banging on the glass door, she's screaming and cursing, and they're like, all right, get the B-52, and for those who aren't um, familiar with medicine, it's basically a cocktail of medications that knock you out, and it's a chemical restraint that we give to people, and 
I always hide when this happens. I've, um, I probably maybe shouldn't say this, but I've actually never physically restrained any of my patients, even when they're orders to do it because I hate it. I can't stand it. And it's like, this was a 40 year old black woman and she just hadn't taken her bipolar meds and she was manic. And I, I was like, can't we just talk it through? <laughs> Can we de-escalate before we get here? Um, yeah, but I think, Jonas, I love that you said alliance, because I, I've, I kept telling her, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm not fighting you. This, you're, There's nothing wrong with you. You just came to a point where you were being abused too much by your boyfriend, and you stopped taking your meds. Like, the, these structures don't pathologize you. I mean, yes, like she has a pathology of bipolar disorder, but I mean, there's so many structures that led her to mania. Yeah, there's already so much that's come up in 10 minutes. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, there's like so many places to go already. Holy cow. Um, one, I mean, I mean I, I'm just going to comment on a couple things and that maybe a question will come out. Um, so one, you know, I also want to reflect, Thandi, what you were saying and your appreciation of Jonas and his willingness to be vulnerable. We're working in this space where it is so, so frowned upon to be vulnerable, to have weakness, to be self-critical, to be critical of others. You're always having to project strength and this sort of paternalistic notion of your capacity and your knowledge and um, it is so dangerous to to talk about things that are unsettling to the people around you. You know, like if you talk, I'm, you know, like to whatever, mental health, depression or insecurity or um, if you start talking about these things, it almost feels like they're going to get used against you. You know, they're going to work their way into your feedback, into your evaluations. Um, it's a very judgmental space because of and I think because of this sort of like pathologizing that you're talking about, like there's this wanting to ascribe a label maybe and 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 say that this is the way that this person is and, and this pathology defines them um I, I would love for you to talk more about how that idea of how you're sort of saying narrative therapy is non-pathologizing um i i can't envision what that means you know where everything in medicine um, is about that chief complaint and is about that pathology that you're treating um, what does it mean for narrative therapy to be non-pathologizing? I, I can't even, um, I, what does that look like in practice? Oh, yeah, I have so many great examples. Um, I was a medical assistant like eight years ago before I, when I was trying to figure out if I wanted to be a doctor, or if I wanted to be a nurse, like what the goal was. Um, and I was taking a history on a patient, a young black man, he must have been in his early 20s or so. And we always ask like, the same family history questions, do you have diabetes, uh, in your family, do you have diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, and asthma? And I asked him that, and he said, probably I'm a black guy. And he pathologized himself as a black man, right? He said, there's something wrong with being black in this country, in Washington, D.C. Um, so, of course, yeah, I probably have family history of diabetes. And I said, well, do you? you there's nothing wrong with you or your family so do you actually and he was like well no and he was like shocked <laughs> right so that's what i mean about non-pathologizing or someone who survived rape or sexual assault right um everyone every single person who has survived something like that that kind of trauma thinks it's their fault i know this from personal experience and the narrative you say to people is it's not your fault 
um, as a forensic nurse examiner. Yeah, like that. Sorry, that's also the joke about me is that I have a lot of jobs. <laughs> so uh, I will keep bringing up random jobs that you didn't know I had before. <laughs> but um, as a forensic nurse examiner, we tell people, well, I believe you, this wasn't your fault. This is trauma. And yes, it happened to you. But um, you, you can say I was raped or I survived rape. Those are two different things, right? And um, there's nothing wrong with a person for having gone through something. There's nothing wrong with a person whose A1C goes up to 9% um, or someone with diabetes. There's nothing wrong with someone who's having a psychotic break if they stop taking their medication because that's what happens when you stop taking your medication. I think like I, uh, I experienced some, 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 some woolly, woolly hard moment and, and, and I remember like I was t- saying somebody, I have to fight to be educated. I have to fight to have the white to weed to white. I have to, f- I have to fight to go to school. I have to fight. Uh, and sometimes I have to fight to eat. You see what I mean? So growing up. So, so all my life I've been fighting for the most basic things. And at some, and at some point, like, it seemed like so many, like, I'm, so, I'm good at fighting. It seemed like I'm good at fighting to reach my goal. I'm good at fighting to, to become the person I'm becoming. But at some point, I'm hurting myself a lot too. Sometimes we tell ourselves that narrative that, and especially for people who call themselves successful people. So they, 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 are, they are fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And they become something that, that the younger self cannot even recognize, okay? Um, and they don't go through, let's say, therapy for that, you know? They don't go through therapy for that. I have one of the pictures that I have to, I have to, I love to look at is a picture of my mom and I and my younger brother. Whenever I feel like I'm going away from who I am, I look at that picture and I remember that 10-year-old boy, uh, you know, like that he's close to his mom and he's like that one of the, pure moment of joy and happiness that I have and I keep asking myself, is this young boy still existing? You see what I mean? And I think like those are things we don't often say in medicine. We don't also think about medicine because we think medicine is have two fifties and step one and this means everything. We think like medicine is only have um or in nursing we think like having that PhD in nursing is is everything and having that job of this vice dean of the nursing school is you made it in life while deep inside we are dying in front of people in front of others yeah and i think what you said about you're always fighting like that that is your narrative and that's the means of how you've gotten to where you're going but i do think i told a patient this once i was like i think you're addicted to pain because you refuse to let anyone help you with pain and he was like you're right i look down on other people who don't experience pain because it's been so much of my life. Um, he had a lot going on. Um, but, I mean, it was fair that he was in pain, but it, it just became who he was. And I think with narrative therapy, there are infinite possibilities every single day of what can happen in your life and in the world. And you can choose certain ones, and you can't choose all of them. Like, I can't wake up and be a Hollywood actress tomorrow, right? But I, I can make compassionate choices for myself. So um, I used to get, I don't know if the right, is fights is the right word, but I used to get in fights with professors a lot in nursing school. I just feel like you can't say that that's racist or you can't say that's so sexist. Like, I can't believe we're learning such regressive things. And 
I, it, like, it became about me. It was so personal. They're like, ah, she's the squeaky wheel and we should just replace the wheel rather than giving it grease kind of a thing. Um, and I, I always felt like it was me against them kind of a thing. And I was addicted to the fight for sure. But now I, I, I really triage what I can handle. Um, if I do hear something harmful in my classes, I just, I, I, I can fight. Everyone has access to the same information I do to word liberation, and some people choose not to hear it. Um, so sometimes it's just not the most compassionate choice for me to fight like I used to, um, and it's more powerful for me to fight in spaces that are willing to receive me. But like I said at the beginning, um, people can hear me now. Like I, I was invisible five, like maybe four years ago, and but like people can hear me now. Like I. I talked to a professor, I said, hey, something very racist was said in class, I'm offended, and I hope in the future you can make this a safe space for all the students. And he's a white man, an older white man, and he was like, I didn't reply to your email for a week because I thought about it and I was going to blame you and I was going to say all these things, but you're right. And honestly, I don't think three years ago that would have been possible to have that civil of a conversation. Um, he even asked me if I wanted to be like, a nursing faculty and stuff like yeah. that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't think this was going to go my way. <laughs> I would. Could you build on that more? I love that idea of how you, you, something's happened where you feel more visible, you're saying, like now than five years ago. Is that a function of the world around you changing or you having new skills or a new mindset? What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, totally. I, I think so. When I was in nursing school, um, like I said, I was very uh, outspoken, a little bit of a firebrand in some ways. <laughs> but I, I remember saying to my mental health professor, I was like, we don't even learn trauma informed care in this program. Like, what are we doing? This was two years ago, maybe. Um, I said, this is, you know, that's like the buzzword in healthcare. And no, I've never heard it said once in my nursing program. And he said, very frankly, to me, I don't know what that means. Um, and I just said, that's disappointing. And that was the end of the conversation. And then a year and a half later, I saw on Facebook that he was running a trauma-informed care workshop, Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> which I had no heartburn over. I was like, well, thank God. Like they heard, they heard what I had to say and they, they had to come to their conclusion on themselves for themselves. Like it's the same with patients, right? I can't be like, go fix your diabetes you haven't heard of this, you have to do this. You know, I, I don't say that to my patients. I'm like, what, what in your power can you change to improve your diabetes? And what do you need to feel like it's your decision to improve your diabetes or quit smoking or whatever, um, or carry Narcan with you when you're using heroin? Like, what do I need to say to you for that to land? Um, and I think people are more willing to receive the, these kind of topics because I, I mean, this has been a cataclysmic world. Like, this is the first time Black Lives Matter isn't a dirty word. I remember I was at the Women's March in 2017, and I always wear a white coat, and I always carry a Black Lives Matter sign, no matter what kind of protest I'm going to. And these three older white women saw my Black Lives Matter sign. They said, oh, if it's going to be one of these things, I, we got to go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, honey, some women are black. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> this is a women's march, you know. <laughs> so, 
So yeah, it just that, I guess that's what I mean. I, I feel visible, like people are agreeing with me. I don't think I've really changed much of what I'm saying. I may be changing how I say it. Um, and I, I do, I mean, I've also been in therapy for like four years now and I, I feel like, um, like I've stopped pathologizing myself. Like I always felt like an outsider. I always felt like I can't, there's no community for me, which is why social medicine consortium has been so healing for me. Um, cause I was always visible at, in the social medicine consortium. I was never, ever invisible, which is powerful. Man, it's, it's like you are, you are narrating my own story. So, you know, that's what <laughs> I love about story. And that's what I love about the people that's surrounding me. Because I feel like those people, they say things in a way where I'm, I'm saying, man, how can she find the white words I couldn't find? And then she's telling my own story. You see what I mean? Um, I'm having some issue now in Boston. And at some time, I feel like, man, this is what happened to me in medical school that is repeating again. But I, I have to be courageous enough and slow down and say, hmm, that's two different stories. Medical school is different than where I am now. Mexico is different than Boston. This is different culture. And how can I, what I didn't learn there, I can learn it here. How can the person I wasn't there, I can it be here? How can I be more supportive? And those things, it take courage. It take courage to change your narrative, to change uh, uh, the story that is on your mind like all the time. And, uh, and to say, okay, I'm going to fight for this and I'm not going to fight for that because I realize I cannot save every single human being. But the, the people that can identify themselves with myself or with my story, maybe they will be part of my own liberation too by liberating myself. Yeah, even what you were saying before, you were always on edge or even what we were talking about earlier this morning about how you feel like you're constantly being surveilled by your, you know, the experiences that you're having right now. Um, that means you're just like constantly activated. You're constantly fighting and fl flighting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's a bit, probably more poetic way of saying that we're fleeing. There's the word. Um, but you know, like you're constantly activated. And I think what the radical, beautiful feminist way to think about things is that you can be so nice to yourself. And because we are expected as three people of color in this room right now to dislike ourselves, right? Yes. Like there's no reason people should like us. So we should like us, right? I love that. <laughs> love that. Like love that. It, it is the thing in capitalism that we are marked for death. Like Jennifer Dentendale said that, right? We aren't meant to survive capitalism. And so the most like the pinnacle of white supremacy, and I, I'm kind of using capitalism and white supremacy interchangeably, is is that they allow us to hate ourselves and destroy ourselves. Like 41% of trans people in the entire, in the US have attempted suicide. And you know more than 70, 80, 90% of trans people in this country have thought about it. If 41% are attempting, and it's because we're undesirable. We're not a good template. We don't fit the biomedical model. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say we, like I'm trans, I'm a cisgender woman. But, um, you know, I say we because I'm in the LGBTQ community. Yeah, we, we are taught to just destroy ourselves so capitalism doesn't have to do that work for us by giving us poor health care, by giving us poor access to things that we need um, and not allowing us to work jobs. You can... Some people get fired from their jobs for their gender expression or who they are, right? Um, even though it's illegal, it still happens. 
Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm a big believer in being compassionate toward yourself because the preservation of us and our bodies, and that's why Black Lives Matter, is that compassion toward ourselves. Yeah. That is so powerful. Yeah, all of this, I'm getting chills. Like, it's great to hear this stuff verbalized. And um, and I'd love to bring this back, too, to one of the pieces that you shared with us. It's uh, called The Art of Medicine. We'll put links and, and whatnot in our in our notes here. Um, and it sort of talks about, you know, wh- whether the issues arise from the laboratory, the clinic, or the polls, we do not serve ourselves or our patients well by uh, underestimating their complexity. To face them fully, one needs at one's disposal a way of knowing that exceeds the technical or the theoretical, that is equipped to absorb and comprehend the situated, unruly, contradictory, meaning-saturated levels of experience. Um, that, I-, I think that's sort of what we're, what you guys are sort of discoursing about i think what we're all trying to get at that um we need to be there's another quote near somewhere like we need to accept the mystery of illness or something like that like we need to stop trying to situate and staple and pathologize um and try to enter this into this mode of thinking where we we're on we're 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 respecting that people are on a journey and that journey is individual and momentary and can be illuminated in this sort of patient interaction, this sort of, you know, again, there's another piece that talks about the provider-patient interaction as this almost like ethnographic, socio-anthropological moment where you're getting to really know this person. All of these ideas are so anathema to what I've been taught in med school about identify the chief complaint, what is your assessment, what are the problems, what is your solution for each one of these problems. This is the cirrhosis patient, this is the heart failure patient, this is the COPD exacerbation, this is the shock of unknown origin. Um, This idea of journey and accepting that the story isn't going to fit into a box is so, like, different, I think, and powerful and... Like, how, how, do, how do we do that, I guess? Like, how do we create space in medicine to allow for the kinds of stories that you guys are talking about? You know, Jonas, your own journey of ups and downs, and, and how do we create a space where we, where we do that? You know, where we allow for this unknowable, this unruly, you know? Um, I, I just, I literally can't even think about how I would do that, you know, in, based within the paradigm of what I've been taught in med school. Like, there's nowhere, there's nowhere in my progress note where that fits, you know, there's like, you know, system, system, system by system. And at the bottom, it's like, you know, the unknowable, or like the journey <laughs> is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I don't even know where it fits into the medical decision making of medicine. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think know. so. Like, I love that you're saying the unknowable, and I think of that as so expansive, and that's also where imagination kicks in too, right? So in narrative therapy, you have unlimited options, right? And you choose the most compassionate one, and so those unknowable, that mystery, it might not be for a patient. Like I had a patient um, like a year and a half ago maybe who was a TPA candidate, and he didn't know what would happen if he had TPA. And for those listening, um, TPA is, it busts clots if you have a clot in your brain from a stroke, right? Um, but if you're already bleeding, it's a bad thing. So there's a risk involved. And he was just like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't want it. <laughs> and everyone was like, dude, like, you really should consider this. And, but it worked out for him. Like, it was, it was like, we didn't know what was going to happen. We just knew what our textbooks told us was going to happen. Um, but, and 
just like a little bit of trust in what was most compassionate for him. He was like, listen, I'm old. If if this is it, fine. But like, you know, this it's I don't want the risk. Um, like that's the pathology, right, of capitalism. And that's the pathology of biomedicine. Um, there is a template human, right? And that's the only way capitalism and biomedicine work. We can sell the same thing to everyone because everyone's the same. And if you deviate, there's something wrong with you. And that's the pathology that I, I think I'm getting deeper at and talking about. There's something wrong with you if you're not responding to our meds the same way. There's something wrong with you if you keep coming back to the emergency department. Like um, I, uh, one of my patients recently, I was like, so what brings you in? She's like, I've had a cough. I said, for how long? She said, five months. And I was like, oh, okay, so what? What made an emergency today? She's like, I was just sick of it. I mean, she had bilateral pleural effusions. Nobody like, <laughs> nobody found that, you know, like, so she was right. She's 93, so everyone just thought she was an old senile lady, but, you know, like, right, <laughs> right, yeah. So like, um, yeah, what you were saying about how people are situated, that quote you read from The Art of Medicine, is that like, what was... How is she situated in this world as a 93-year-old black woman who lives alone and has a cough for five months that nobody cares about? Because she was like, I've been going to the doctor. They haven't said anything. And I was like, they didn't say anything? Like, you have plus four pitting edema in your feet. <laughs> you know? Like, so it, it just, yeah, those narratives. And I also like the concept of the art of medicine, or in my case, the art of nursing, um, because I strongly believe that art is putting yourself into something like the most beautiful art pieces I've seen, I could feel the artist's representation in it, like something in their narrative made it beautiful. Um, like poetry, you, you feel that there's a deep connection with the author and understanding and kind of joining with that author and that narrative is what's magnificent. And so in healthcare, when we, when we are as vulnerable or as present with our patients or clients or people we work with, um, I, I think that's like the beauty of healthcare and that's when it becomes poetry. You know, while you guys were talking, um, so, you know, we fight medicine, we fight um, a lot disease, we fight that we become sometimes insensitive, insensitive or we, or less sensitive, sensible, um, if I can use that words, um, when we have a patient. And I think if we can preserve our ability to feel, that will help in the narrative. If we can, if we can preserve our, like it's more than being compassionate, but, but to preserve our ability to feel of what's going on. And I'm going to give an example um, last week, um, uh, there is that patient in my hospital, there is a lot of non-English speaking patient and, you know, I feel fortunate and blessed even though my journey have been upside down, but at some point th that same journey grant me language skill too, because moving from Haiti to Mexico and then now the U.S., not because I wanted it, but because the, my journey unfold like that, but at the same time, one of the most beautiful part of my journey was gaining the language skill of the place have been so and i remember like she was a man she's young can't say the uh, age but she's young she have a 
metastasis cancer, like, I don't know, for some reason, like, she's not responding anymore. Like, literally, she's not responding. And, you know, when people come to America, there is that belief, that trust, not only in medicine, but in whiteness. Like, people moving outside of the U.S., coming to the, to the U.S. to get treatment, no matter all the stage of their cancer was, they believe, like, because they're coming to the white man's house, the white man can cure them. You know, there is a strong belief in the white man as a doctor. That's one. So that means when, when you say to the person, I can't do anything for you, you break your heart, you, you break their expectation. You sort of be like, so I was trying to, to, to translate for her and I was trying to explain to her, um, it's out of, uh, out of queue now, they can't do anything. So that's happened on Monday. On Wednesday, the, the, the co-intern who, who, who was working with that patient, he saw me and he said, Jonas, thank you because you helped me uh, with that patient. But I want to tell you, like, she just passed away. She passed away in two days. You know, I was, it, you know, it was tough. You know, at that moment when I, everything that I was thinking was bad in my life, everything like didn't, didn't mean too much anymore, you know, just by having that. But the unique things I do because some, oh, she shared a lot of cultural background with me because I've been in Mexico, I've been in Haiti, da, da, da. So I moved to, to her place and tried to, to, to pay respect. You see what I mean? Try to. So I think like those are the little things I bring with me. Whenever, wherever I am, trying to stay alive, trying to not let the science I'm studying to, to, to crush the human that I used to be. You see what I mean? Like, um, because for example, in Mexico on November 1st, we celebrate death, you know, like it's like and the Mexican culture, there's that idea you're not dead until the last person who knows you die. That's powerful. <laughs> you know, that's powerful. That's powerful. So also on that day, there's a lot of offering. So, so I respect that. I respect that. And as, as, a, as a physician, I respect that. You know, yes, I'm trying to take good care of the body and everything like that. But when the person is talking about on November 1st, I have to offer offering for my, for my ancestor, whatever, I have to respect that. So I think like those type of narrative, we have to bring them into medicine. We have to be a little bit more cultural, uh, humble, uh, culturally humble, um, aware, and, 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 and try to, to save that part of our humanness while we're trying to study science and cure the patient who has a stroke, and cure the patient who has a a, 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 a kidney, a chronic kidney uh, disease. So we have to work on that by 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 being so courageous by fighting the disease to not become less sensitive. Yeah, yeah, and I think what you were saying about you have to let go of being human. I think I, I maybe see this more in medicine than nursing for a very good reason, I think, um, the reason being patriarchy, <laughs> is that when you put the white coat on, you are an objective observer. And there is no 
experience in the entire world that is objective. Everything is subjective. And we, I mean, that comes from my anthropological background, but science is subjective. You know, as Michelle was speaking about in one of the podcasts, like we, we used to have different GFRs based on race. We used to use our pulmonary function tests based on race because of this assumption that black bodies are more muscular or that their lungs are bigger so they can work in the fields, right? And that's wrong. Obviously that's wrong. And that is a subjectivity of medicine. And th- like that, there's nothing objective about that, right? And I struggle with that. Um, like I have to put on this white coat and I'm doing a lab experiment now, like you were saying, Raghav, about, you know, that they're just cirrhosis. They're just heart failure. They're not people, you know? Um, there's... Um, uh, essay by uh, Nancy Shepard Hughes, a medical anthropologist um, with Margaret Locke about um, the three bodies in medicine, like the individual body, the social body, and the body politic. And they tell a little story about how they're doing rounds on this woman who has headaches and they, they interrupt her. She's telling her story about how she lost her husband and all these things. And one of the students just gets impatient, interrupts the patient and mm-hmm. says, well, what's the real cause of the headaches? And it was like, damn, listen to the lady. (laughs) Like, she's telling you. (laughs) Like, it may, sure, maybe it's a brain tumor, who knows, you know, but like, this is her lived experience. And, you know, that person was just fully, like, they didn't exist. There's no compassion for that um, person. And their narratives did not intertwine, basically. But I, I think in nursing, the reason I say I don't know if it's as, salient in nursing is um we always get forever we've always been in the united states the most trusted profession right and there are a lot of yeah and there are a lot of like layers of complexity to that we're also like what 75 percent white we're also um a let uh 91 women right um so yeah, like there are a lot of layers of complexity. I think there is a duality of doctors as dad, nurses as mom. You complain about different things to each of them, <laughs> and which is very problematic in the capitalist society structure is why. But um, I do think nurses do this thing where we try and emulate medicine and we fetishize evidence-based care over what we see when we see our patients and that's so much more powerful right like as a midwife i know all the things in my textbook but i also know that my patient can't make it to her prenatal appointments because of transportation or because of coronavirus she doesn't have a job or child care and she's doing you know home stuff with her kids now as a midwife i know i mean in every single class i've taken we talk about complementary and alternative care for every thing and even serious things like preterm labor, right? Like we talk about how our patient's going to approach this because everyone who's pregnant has done something that wasn't <laughs> like by the book medicine because there's a lot of frustration in pregnancy. You're pregnant for like more, like almost a whole year or so. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I actually went into nursing to be reflective about myself is because I wanted to be a better feminist and I didn't analyze because I actually was pre-med in college um, and I thought I wanted to be a doctor and I just slowly realized that it was not really who I was Um, but I didn't realize that there's so much internalized misogyny in my field Um, Mm. I didn't realize that it is mostly white women in my field Um, those were hard 
I would love to hear you speak more about that and also about, you know, as you yourself have alluded to, you have many, many, many hats. Uh, <laughs> you sort of describe some of them as crunchy hats and some of them as not as crunchy <laughs> hats. Um, I would love for you to talk more about, one, that feeling of internalized misogyny and also maybe about some of the different form, the, the, the different spaces that you're sort of living in in medicine as like the doula versus the medical anthropologist versus the midwife then versus the nurse and versus the nurse practitioner versus the academic um versus the yoga instructor you're 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 in an interesting you're in a very you know you self-described as an outsider as well but you're going through all of these spaces where people talk about the patient very differently so um would love to hear you expand on that internalized misogyny and also what are what is that like sort of walking into these different spaces and how do they all, how are they all different? How are they similar? Is that too vague a question? I don't know. No, that's actually like my narrative. Like that's what yeah. I used to talk about and I realized I was talking about it too much. So I stopped a little bit. <laughs> well, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, like I said, I was pre-med. I took the MCAT and I applied to medical school, sank a few thousand dollars into that. Right. It's a very expensive process. Um, and on it, I, I, to be honest with myself, I, I thought I was too good for nursing. Like I thought that if I'm in healthcare, I ought to be a doctor, right? And that was a lot of internalized misogyny. That was a lot of internalized patriarchy for me that I had to undo. And especially as an Indian immigrant, just the narrative of what it means to be a nurse in India versus a nurse in the United States is quite different, right? Um, not to say that Indian nurses are any less or different. They just the the narrative uh, culturally of nurses is different um yeah so i i kind of this is like my narrative therapy i did the most compassionate outcome for myself was to stop sinking thousands of dollars into medical school and i got into the best nursing school in the country like that was a very loud message right <laughs> It wasn't like I wasn't meant to do nursing because the best of the best thought I would be a great nurse. Um, and that, I mean, and that was also another narrative I will have to unpack at a different time of what is the best and why is it the best. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, and then another thing I, I thought about nursing that I didn't fully understand until I got here was that I thought it was just like, feminist haven because we're all women right so we might as well be good at feminism wrong <laughs> that, was the, that was a big misstep in my part um in nur in nursing i think it's like 90 9 percent excuse me of nurses are men they also tend to hold higher positions management positions they tend to be more likely to be chief nursing officers and at the bedside they make about 7K more than women with the same education. They're only 9% of our field is them and they still make more than us. So it's, a, an, uh, I mean, throughout nursing school, throughout any interactions I've had with nurses in different contexts, people keep saying we need more men to be diverse. And that like, I, I, I can't, I still don't understand that fully because in my opinion, if we were 100% like black women, we would be the most diverse workforce, right? <laughs> That's been a huge struggle for me. Um, even in advanced practice nursing, which is the path I'm headed toward now, every single specialty advanced practice nursing, family medicine, acute, gero, 
um, psych nursing, all of those nurse practitioners make less than their male counterparts, up to 15K, even higher in some other subspecialties per year. Except midwifery, <laughs> because there are not enough men for that statistical difference. <laughs> Which is another lovely reason to be a midwife. Um, yeah, I just think there's a lot of power in understanding that. Because if we have internalized misogyny and racism and all of these different axes of oppression, we're going to enact them on our patients. I also have another narrative that's really fascinating to me in nursing, if I may talk about that. Um, have you heard of like Nurse Ratched or Ratched? For one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Exactly. So, um, just like a brief summary of that book, um, it's about a man who's institutionalized for a mental health issue, and the head nurse is Nurse Ratched, um, Mildred Ratched. And um, the book is about their conflict, basically. And he tries to get away with all these things, like he brings in prostitutes, is what they call it in the book, I would say sex worker, um, it, because those are women who are useful to him, right? Um, like there's a lot of mommy issues in the book and stuff like that. But Nurse Ratch is an authoritative, authoritarian, powerful figure, right? Um, and the climax of the book is actually he gets the better of her, pins her down and tears open her blouse to expose her breasts. And that's exposing her sexuality, right? And the asserting the male dominance over the female um, power figure. In nursing, this is true. People will call you a nurse ratchet if you are acting too, like you're trying to control things too much. So Ken K Casey or Kesey, I can't remember the author's name. He, he was very outspoken anti-feminist. He thought the feminist movement was garbage. He was actually kind of a men's rights activist in like a sense of the word. So I absolutely hate that book and I hate that we talk about it in healthcare. But oh <laughs> shit. Yeah. When you, say, when you say people people use the term nurse ratchet, you mm -hmm. mean like other people in healthcare or patients? Nurses. Each other. You guys are calling yeah. each other that to sort of... Uh-huh. To put demean. us in our place. Yeah. yeah. And this new stupid Netflix show, I'm sorry, Sarah Paulson, you're a great actress, but <laughs> this stupid Netflix show called Ratchet about her backstory before she becomes like the character in um, the book... She's depicted as a lesbian. And so you have this angry anti-woman lesbian who sabotages male patriarchy. And it's like, come on, 2020. Like, you didn't ask anyone before you wrote that script. Yeah. We need more sophisticated <laughs> conversations about what's right. going on and who can lead us and what forms of leadership are capable and possible. And So this sort of relates then to some of your other work with, um, like, working as a doula, working as a yoga instructor, midwif you're, you're sort of describing midwifery as different, right? That's sort of what I'm picking up on. It doesn't have the same, this sort of same internalized self-hatred that, if I yeah. can call it that. that how well, is that I'm sure different? there is a bit. It is a very white field, right? It is still like you have, um, like uh, my professional organization um, is the American College of Nurse Midwives and I mean, it does have roots in anti-choice. It was never very happy with the abortion debate early on, right? Now it's changed with the the membership. But um, 
like you said, chief complaint earlier, for example, um, we actually have been pushing our, our documentation to say chief concern. It's such a subtle difference. You can still write CC, you know, like if you're used to that for your shorthand. <laughs> but it, it, it's like, you know, when you're doing a case report in front of a patient, you said patient complains of chest pain. I'm like, I wasn't complaining. I just have it. <laughs> you know, jeez. But it's just such subtle differences. Um, and like, even if you're presenting a patient case at the bedside, you can use second person instead of third person for the patient. So like, Miss Wilson, you have chest pain that's been lasting for five days. And she can be like, yeah, actually, it's been uh, more like seven, you know, so like you're inviting the patient into the conversation and interweaving your narratives together. Um, and I think that is compassionate for yourself and for the patient. Yeah. Um, you know, I yeah, I, so many things was going in my mind uh, while we were talking about that. You know, and also trying to see. Uh, you know, I was discussing with one of my program director about how often, you know, in medicine we tell ourselves so many lies. Um, so, for example, you go and, and you're going to take the story of the patient. Actually, you are the one writing the story of the patient. Like, the patient has no control over, over what you are saying. So, that means you you kind of take the story of somebody and write it for it. And you know that's not something good, you know? That's not something good. That's that's, And many of our patients don't, don't, don't realize that because we don't make them feel that. We don't make them feel they are part of something. We don't have that sense of symmetry when it's come for medicine and I think how do we that... create that though you know like I, I, I you know like what's the answer like I, I think we're all on the same page I'm sure yeah. that we all you know I think it is what Tanvi said in the very beginning about making the patient feel like the protagonist not the doctor feel like the protagonist or whatever but how do we do that like I'm actually like what does that look like in practice you know yeah, you know to be honest with you I, you know I want Tom Tanvi to to give her say on that too um I don't know but but the point is it's take a lot of time like to to stand against that something that have been here for centuries nevertheless we they still hope that tomorrow can be better than today and I think one of the things like we we can and we should do is to see the every time you are in contact with the patient, or at least for me, that's why it's something I've always trying to do. See that as a sacred moment. See that as a as something that it's nothing in this world can replace it. You know, when I talk with my mom and I ask my mom, what's the most beautiful moment in your life? And she said to me, when I got my first child, when when your older brother was born, and that for me was was beautiful. And and like just try to I'm try I cannot picture that I am a man you know I cannot picture that but when I'm in front of the patient I'm trying to leave something that is beautiful you know what I mean something that is for you know I have that I have that guy yesterday I mean I look at all his chat like from four years ago he came for only one thing all the time alcohol withdrawal alcohol withdrawal all the time alcohol withdrawal so basically in my mind. As an intern, when I'm going downstairs to see him, and in my mind, like the narrative, man, this guy is trying to kill himself. He knows alcohol is not good. Da, 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 da. So I have everything going on in my mind. Everything, everything, everything. When I walk into the room, he was on his defensive. He was in his defensive. And I say, and I say, oh, do you feel now? He say, I couldn't be worse than that. That's all he answered to me. You said a bit. And at some point, I try to not say a word. 
I try to not say words, and I realize he has some spaghetti over his um, over over his clothes. And I say, "Can I help you?" And I try to take the spaghetti. I don't say any words, and I take it. He's just paying attention to me, and I take it, and I go and I uh, put them in the trash, and then I come back. I stay around, but at some point, the guy he decided to talk with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. I, at some point, he decided to talk with me, and whatever I'm asking him, he said, he said to me, "Man, I didn't want them to send me to Beth Israel. I wanted to come here." Da, 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 da. He, he tried to speak with me. He tried to tell me how he's feeling. You know, he tried to tell me because in that moment I realized my presence is a powerful presence, but not all, but not always in a good way. Like when I say powerful presence, I'm talking. The man coming here just to tell me alcohol is bad. The man who is coming here just to like uh, uh, um, uh, blame me, shame me, or whatever. But what if we walk into the room and we we'll give some space to the patient to feel that whatever we think the patient is, he's not. Yeah. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard when everybody will go to medical school. We are privileged. You Absolutely, cannot become yeah. a doctor without privilege. You have to be privileged. Yeah, and then I told now you, you yeah. I spent like thousands of dollars trying to get exactly. it. That's a privilege. <laughs> That's a privilege. Now you have a lot of people with a privileged background taking care of people without privilege. Or do you want them to relate? Totally. I, you said so many things and my mind was going in so many different places. But to start with like a big concept, like my two principles that I hold in healthcare are nobody wants to be sick yes sure some people love being sick and like being taken care of but they don't actually want to be sick they want to be taken care of yes. right and the other one and jonas correct me if i don't say this correctly but <laughs> tout mon c'est mon tout mon c'est mon that, that's good yeah okay <laughs> and everybody's somebody yes everybody is somebody even yes. us on the team that nurse that you helped out they're somebody yes Right? Everybody yes. is somebody. Um, and just, Raga, to go back to your question about, like, how do we do that? Like, how do we make residents pick up meds for nurses? Yeah. <laughs> that's you know, that's not the really, question. No, yeah. no. How do we get that back? You know, there's, like, really basic studies that if you use first names on a team, like, I don't call you Dr. Attalus, I mm -hmm. call you Jonas, mm -hmm. that actually improves patient outcomes. If we refer to each other by our first names, if we humanize each other and know each other's names, <laughs> so basic, right? But it doesn't happen. My first nursing job, I referred to all the physicians by their by their their title, mm -hmm. right? Um, I didn't refer to any nurses by their last names, except for like some older kind of crotchety ones that kind of like that. <laughs> But, you know, it, it's these really basic things of like, how do we take the objectivity out of things and make our experiences subjective? Like you understood the subjectivity of what that patient was going through. He did not want to be sick. Alcohol use disorder is so difficult to get over. It is the Man. hardest use disorder to get it, over. Yeah, right. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. want to be sick. He yeah. knew he was sick of being there, seeing you. You were sick of seeing him. You have Don't your put all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so it, it's you. You saw him. You like picked up his like you know messy shirt for him and stuff, which is also another nursing task. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you you allowed yourself to be with that person in that moment, and I think that's what we miss because 
Again, capitalism requires us to have everyone in cookie cutters so we can give the same dose to every single patient and there are no adverse outcomes and everything is the same and so we can automate everything, right? But it just takes the beauty, the art, the poetry out of the whole experience. Like my favorite patient that I've ever had, <laughs> like I cried with him because, so you, you won't expect why I cried with him, but he came in completely naked. He was on PCP. It torn out like ceiling tiles from a hotel or motel six. And, um, they restrained him again. Like I said, I was hide when people were getting restrained <laughs> and I, I gave him a um, midazolam and he calmed down. We gave him a ton of fluids. He came out of it and he was like, what happened? And I was like, you tore apart a hotel room. <laughs> I was like, you yelled at everyone and spat on everyone. <laughs> and then he, I said, what's going on? Why do you want to destroy yourself? Why do you hate yourself so much? What's wrong? No one who likes themselves does that. And he said, my, yeah, I'm, I unfortunately am very frank with my patients. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, I had to stab you in the arm with a drug and I couldn't tell you why I was doing it because you were so out of it. I hate doing that to people. Um, and he was like, my girlfriend was murdered. And I can't stand living without her. And I said, well, she lives with you, like you said, our generations of the people that we carry, like you said, speaking about Day of the Dead, everything ends with us. When we go, then everyone goes. So I told, I didn't say it like that, but I said, you know, like her memory is with you. As you destroy yourself, you're destroying her. And then we cried. <laughs> we just cried. <laughs> And like, I, I think that was what was powerful for him. I, I mean, he might have used PCP again the next weekend. Who knows? I don't know what happened to him. That's also like the painful part about working in the emergency department. You just don't know what happens. But um, I like, I just hope he hears that and thinks about that the next time he picks up something to use it. And again, I have no problem with people using if it makes them happy and it works for them. But if they're using and they're coming to the emergency department naked, you know. Yeah. That's a problem. You know, um, I want to add something on, like you were saying, like if you know people's name, like that helped the patient. Mm -hmm. um, something that I learned recently is if you can sit down on the patient bed, it disturbed, it, uh, it can distort time. You get yeah. that? It's yeah. like literally if you, they realize if you just go into the room and you say, I'm Dr. Atlas, and you speak with the patient while the patient is in his bed or his or her bed, and you're talking, um, on the other end, you can go try to sit on the bed and then talk with the patient. The patient has a feeling when you said time was slower. Hmm. Like you so, weren't as much in a hurry. Like we see exactly. doctors, like they literally have an arm out the door and they're like, hey, uh, you got any pain? <laughs> All right, I'll get back. <laughs> yeah, the, the patient has a feeling you spend more time with him or with her. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. those little things that we don't pay attention to, it, those are extremely yeah. important, you know? And something I don't try to do, I don't try to teach in front. I don't try to teach in front of the patient. I, I don't... I don't know. I you know I, I'm the lowest in the hierarchy now, but I, I we have medical student, and also I don't say my medical student. I say our medical student because mm -hmm. you know I, I you know people can say to me my intern. I don't mind with that, but I would prefer somebody to say our intern. You see what mm -hmm. I mean? So, or not even possession. I say to my patients, I'm the nurse who will be working with you. Yeah. I never say I'm your nurse. I say exactly. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. the one who'll be working with you. 
And like that make, means they're working too, right? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> like exactly. It's part of their narrative. Yeah, yeah no, that, the wording is perfect. It's perfect though. And, and that's why I say like uh, the contact between the patient is sacred. Yeah, and I think that goes back to how people pathologize themselves, right? So if you are diabetic in this country, in the U.S., like people will just assume you're poor. You don't have the means to take care of yourself. You're too stupid to take care of yourself. Right, like you said, you're going into that um, alcoholic patient's room, and you you were like you were gonna tell them alcohol's bad for you. Yeah. Does anyone not know that? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> how, you, you, how conceited yeah. of us to say, didn't you know? Are yeah. you too stupid to care about yourself? Yeah, right. Yeah. What you're yeah. saying is like, what trauma did you have? Ex that brought yeah. you to alcohol. Exactly. Like when I asked that patient on PCP, yeah. what? What happened that you disliked yourself enough yeah, to hurt yeah, yourself? Yeah. You know, I not, not only I asked the patient, the patient told me, like, his dad was alcoholic. You know, I, I talk with, I even talk with the wife of the patient when I was talking and I said, man, every family has addiction. Some, sometimes it skips generation, but there is nobody who doesn't know someone who is addicted to something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I feel like you guys are both really illuminated for me that question of what what does this look like in practice what what does it mean to practice narrative therapy in medicine what does it mean to change the dialogue and and to to make the patient the protagonist like it, it's this very creative act you know it's it's sort of what you know Thunvi, what you're describing of this moment of asking what I would call as a, a deeply insightful and creative question um, that requires your lots of your own lived experience, your own narrative experience, the, the books that you've read, the things that you've done in life. And Jonas, the same thing with going and, you know, picking off the spaghetti from that person's shirt or whatever. These are two things that are not in textbooks, right? Like there's nowhere in the textbook where it says to gain access to patient's confidence, walk into room and display spaghetti from shirt. And this will therefore allow the patient to open up to you. It's, it's this creative, emotional um, thing that is very hard to teach and I think very, very hard to practice. And it, it's just about accepting that the person in front of you is a human being and, and being curious about, really being curious about them and their story, right? It seems like it's a very creative and curiosity driven process. And uh, it's so sad to me how much of my training has nothing to do with curiosity and nothing to do mm. with this thing that you're describing. I um, mean, is so goal oriented uh, and so deeply non-curious um, and deeply non-creative and deeply non-personal. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really appreciating what both of you guys are sharing about this sort of, you know, this sacred moment of engaging and holding communion with another human being um, and how that can unlock potential of care and, you know, their own progress in their illness or, or whatever, or your own progress in your own issues. And um, it, it's it's kind of making sense to me, Thunby, what you're sort of describing as narrative therapy and how it could be played out within um, this traditional patriarchal me medical paradigm that I'm, I'm being trained in. Um, and I see why no one wants to do it, because it is incredibly <laughs> difficult and it requires yeah. you to have lived experience and things that, as as Jonas, as you were alluding to, most physicians have no lived experience in and have no way of being able to see that patient on PCP and ask such an insightful question. 
um, you know, because it, it requires so much creativity and so much um, something inside that most people don't have. Um, so I, I'm, a pre- I'm really appreciative of can, can, can I Can I add something? I, I'm going to switch a little bit. It required something that most people, we haven't cultivated yet. It's not mm-hmm. we don't have it, but I think but we don't. Yeah, go ahead. I proved that we do because I did it. That's the brilliant thing, right? Yeah. Infinite possibilities, but this one exists because it happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it, it's possible. And it's because I, I've i ingrained myself in harm reduction. I believe that everyone has inherent dignity and nobody wants to be sick. That's it. Like, again, those those two principles, right? And so, and also Adrienne Marie Brown says in Emergent Strategy, there's only one conversation that we can have in this room, the three of us. And it's so powerful because that is our subjective realities and how do we create this conversation together? So part of narrative therapy, part of narrative medicine is that there are infinite possibilities and only we, like the three of us, can come to one of those infinite possibilities together. And it has to be the most compassionate possibility, right? We could have anyone, that guy who keeps coming in for alcohol withdrawal, you could just dump him, be like, here's your Librium, get out of here, stop doing that, you're bad, you know? But you chose to take a different route because we weren't going to keep doing the same thing with the same person, you know? Like you, you saw that person, you saw their basic humanity, and you saw your own vulnerability of this patient being defensive, and you knew that you weren't going to be that powerful person in the room that you normally might have been. So I think, I don't know, I, I like to approach things with softness now. Um, I, I mean, I've never really been an angry person. I know I sound angry sometimes when I talk about <laughs> internalized misogyny or racism, but I'm, I'm really not. I'm like yeah, a very slow yeah, burn kind yeah, of a person. Yeah. But yeah. 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 I don't think we are angry. I think like we're trying to tell the world... Um, we are trying to speak with the world and and the the world is telling us we are angry and then we put mm-hmm. that narrative in our mind and that's the pathologizing thing that is the narrative of where you pathologize yourself like the feminist killjoy right mm-hmm. like i'm sure a bunch of nurses if they heard me talk about nurse ratch they'd be like god shut up she always goes <laughs> on oh my god here she goes again <laughs> And then I'm like, oh, am I like really killing the joy in the room? Am I really like the bad mm. person? I'm like the person who made sure no one was happy today. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. And right. it's not true because there is the problem for me is that is that we aren't toward liberation when we're doing that. Mm. And everything we got to do has to point toward liberation, yeah. period. Yeah, I, I think we're going to ask the last question. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can ask, ask one question. But uh, but I wanted to ask Tenvi, what bring you here? What bring you, what, what actually like make me realize, man? You know, I cannot give you, I cannot live like that anymore. I got to do something to the world, and I got to do this work. What bring you here? Um, I can give like a very literal answer and a more metaphoric, poetic answer. My literal answer is I used to be like a population health manager and I hated my job and I was depressed and I just didn't like what I was doing and I was applying to nursing schools and medical schools. And I was on actually Fitzhugh Mullins listserv. It used to be called the Medicine Education Futures something symposium, MEFs. And they never sent out anything on their listserv. This is before the Beyond Flex Center Alliance existed. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was this like I think I got the email on a Monday and it said there's a conference in Minneapolis on next like on Friday and Paul Farmer is the keynote speaker and I was like oh I read about him as a medical anthropology student and so on Tuesday I bought a ticket to Minneapolis and on Thursday I was in Minneapolis <laughs> and that was the first social medicine conference wow and I didn't know anyone there um it was like a week after Prince died, so I like went to Paisley Park, and so so I made a trip out of me. Which year uh, was that? That was 2016. Is that right? Yeah, 2016. Um, so it was the first conference, and afterward, they invited people to be on their weekly Zoom call if they were at the conference, but they didn't think any random women from Virginia would just show up at the conference and take that invitation seriously. <laughs> And I just started showing up to the weekly calls and everyone was like, we don't know who this is. You're amazing, my friend. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then Trump Trump got elected later that year and everyone kind of got thrown for a loop at these weekly or monthly, sorry, um, Zoom calls. And I offered a bunch of resources. And so people just started talking to me more. And then I somehow helped Michelle launch the campaign against racism. <laughs> yeah, you're amazing. No, you're amazing, man. You're amazing. It just felt right to me. If I was so powerful to be in that space for me. I, I feel deeply that our education in healthcare at Raugov, as you keep like alluding to, is the failure. That is the crux of the problem. And students are so powerful and they're the ones who change that, right? So like my long-term goal is to be faculty. Like I, in my program, I have never had a non-white um, professor. So I would like to be that non-white professor wow. for someone one day. Where'd it go? Wow. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Long you, road. You all made it. You all made it. You know, I'm waiting for you, my friend. I'm waiting I'm trying. for you. Yeah. What was yeah. your figurative answer? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think it was just like unlearning the internalized misogyny of being too good to be a nurse. I think it was unlearning. Like when I moved from D.C. to Baltimore... Now that I'm doing my rotations in D.C. again, I see it so differently. I understand that when I lived in D.C., I like literally didn't see black people in my neighborhoods and I just didn't see them as people. And I and Baltimore has garnered a lot of humility for me. Baltimore has really pushed me to open my heart in different ways, which I think is also the bedrock of art and therefore the bedrock of medicine as well and nursing. Um yeah, and I, I, I just I, I just can't, again, everything I do has to be positioned toward liberation because that is the most compassionate narrative we choose. Amen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't mean to give a sermon. <laughs> so this is, this no, is no, your mouth? This, this is what, what happened is... <laughs> also, not that's to take good. anything seriously, that's one of my core philosophies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. You know, I like that. I love that, actually. <laughs> This is Social Medicine On Air, co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Atlas. Produced by Brendan Johnson and myself, Raghav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or at Twitter at socialmedonair. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. 
it would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.